of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 507. Jason Lingren is with me, and we have a guest using a pseudonym who will be called May. Uh, we're basically going to cover the events of Nagasaki during World War II, or maybe near the end of World War II. May had a mother and a grandmother who were both in Nagasaki, and we're going to move from uh, that premise. Welcome, Jason. And a lovely good morning. Uh, welcome, May. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. We have very brief notes, so maybe we should start by most of the information here is going to come directly from your mother, who is, we just found out, almost identically my mother's age. Uh, My mother passed away a year ago, just after Easter. Uh, Your mother is turning 90, and so they were literally born in the same year. Now, your mother was in Nagasaki, as was your grandmother, but as you pointed out to me, and is typical of that generation, your grandmother was very stoic. And I guess there was a little information shared, but not a lot. Would you like to add anything to that description to cue this up? No, uh, that's it. I mean, unfortunately, we didn't get much information from my grandmother because she wasn't very talkative. But again, my mother's still alive. She just turned 90. And we're fortunate to have her alive, healthy. And one thing I really want to point out is that none of them had cancer. So there you go. You know, it was weird when I was in the Marine Corps. When you get there, they do these trips to acclimate you to the place. And one of the trips that I heard from other people was actually Hiroshima. And that's a whole other story. But what was weird is they have these, you know, like when you come up to a street and you're going to cross, they had this sound. And people told me that was a direct result somehow of the damage that had been done to people from the nuclear weapons. I don't know if that's true. But let's start at the beginning. Why do you think it's important to share this story? There's a few reasons that I wanted to come out and share our story. One of them is really, it was probably about six or seven years ago when I first heard that there were people out there who questioned the existence of nuclear weapons and that uh, they didn't really believe the official narrative of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And when I first stumbled upon these people, my first reaction was of fascination. I wasn't offended. I didn't think that these people were ignorant. So I had to really step back and ask myself, could it be that there could be a different story? Because you accepted that it was how you had been told it happened is what you accepted at that time was true. Yeah, of course. And my mom and my grandmother were survivors. And for decades, we heard the stories of how they survived. Uh, There's really no reason for us to question that. You know, I don't question their experience at all. It's just certain factors that come into play when you talk about the official narrative of whether or not there was radiation or, you know, that it caused cancer and all of this. It just didn't apply in our personal lives. So all of these years, we thought of it as a miracle or a blessing or what have you. You know, and it is true that that was a blessing for them to be able to survive the war and the event because there was an event that did happen and my mom suffered injuries. But that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to come out and say that we actually encourage the questioning and we want people to enter into the discussion. My siblings and I were very open people. Again, we don't doubt or we don't want to downplay any of the suffering that my mom and grandmother and any of the other survivors 
of Hiroshima and Nagasaki suffered during that time. It was war. There was death and suffering and injuries for sure. But to come out and say, hey, my mom was there. How could you say that nuclear weapons don't exist? That's not a step that I I can take, honestly. It's just she had a personal experience and I myself have questions. At this point, I don't... I can't say that I have all the answers, but I thought it was important for your listeners to know that it's okay to ask these questions. And as a descendant of Hibakusha, which is the Japanese term for atomic bomb survivors, I should have a personal stake in these discussions, you would think. But even we have questions. So I just wanted to lay that out there for everyone. Okay, I just looked up the word so people can look up, but it's actually written as Hibakusha. So it would be H I B A K U S H A for people who want to look it up. And I think that's an important idea because there was kind of a stigma that I picked up on from my time in Japan. But I've, I've got to ask would you consider that the idea of having family members that were part of the Hibakusha? Uh, was that part of who your family was? I mean, was it ingrained in, I don't want to say the family narrative, but the family history, was it a big part of how you identified as a family? Uh, Yes, it still plays a big part. It comes up in conversations where we meet people and yeah, for sure. It's uh, it becomes a part of your identity much more, obviously much more so for my mother who experienced it all. And so do you remember when you first heard other people putting forward ideas that questioned the narrative of a nuclear bomb drop on Nagasaki? Do you remember what some of the points were that they brought up that got you thinking? No, I think it's just a whole concept that people were even questioning anything about it. Again, I wasn't offended or anything. You would think that I would be shocked, like um, I accepted the whole story of my mom and I still do. It's just that all of this information regarding radiation and cancer, it just didn't make any sense to me because it didn't apply to their lives or to whatever personal experience they have had or whatever they appear to have witnessed when they were there. So one of the points I wanted to bring up too was that my grandmother was asked about the cancer situation and she actually said that she didn't really hear about this connection until pretty much in the 70s. Like she didn't really hear about cancer being such a big deal in people's lives until the 70s, which I thought was pretty peculiar considering that she is she was officially there on August 9th. So I don't know what to think of that. I really don't know. It's not something that our family feared, even though it's something that I suppose we should have. I really don't know. So it wasn't a common thing amongst survivors to discuss anything like the cancer thing just never came up? In our family, we did we did know about it. Honestly, I can't really tell when it was when we realized that there was a connection, if there was a connection. Our family is a little bit different in a sense that we my my mom really prescribed to my mom and my father we really prescribed to the terrain theory. So we didn't really believe whether or not we had this as part of our identity, but we knew that there was supposed to be some kind of connection. If you have been irradiated, then you're supposed to 
fear cancer and it's supposed to manifest in one way or another and that your descendants, there might be something genetically wrong with them. But again, you know, my mom had multiple children. There was just no fear of cancer. Again, I just want to point out as well that both my mother and my grandmother were both, my mom's still alive. Uh, they didn't take any pharmaceuticals. They uh, didn't have any illnesses. My mom's still super healthy. She doesn't take any medication or anything. And we're all healthy. So, you know, it always struck me as interesting that there was a word introduced to cover this. And as I was looking it up, I'm going to tell folks what the original word, and we should have had Rose in here because I think she actually speaks some Japanese. So I'll do the best I can. I apologize if I mess it up. So it's Hai Baku Sha, I think, but that's how it would sound to us phonetically sounded out in English. Hai means affected, Baku means bomb, and then Sha is person. But what's interesting, as I look up what's become of it, there's been an updated to it, and they have removed part of it. So it now says a person affected by exposition. Isn't that interesting that it would be swapped out for the word exposition? I'm just saying, but Jason, you want to jump in? I'm trying to think how to word this, but the Japanese have their own societal sense of honor and what you should and shouldn't talk about. Is that a fair way to put that? Yes. There's a big thing about saving face and um, certain things, certain issues or certain uh, discussions are taboo. So apparently this was one of the stigmas like Hibaksha during the atomic bomb to survivors. A lot of them had some kind of visible scar from burning. So people were looked at as it's not really a, a contagion or anything like that, but there was the stigma attached to survivors that they had some kind of uh, radiation illness and that when it came to people looking for mates for people to marry, then there were a lot of people who couldn't find partners because there was this stigma attached to that label that they wouldn't be able to bear any children. So that was one of the big things. For whatever reason, my father didn't seem to care that my mom had this in her history. A lot of people hid that part of their history so that they could get married. And as far as I know, I don't even really know if this became a real thing, uh, meaning that if there were people who were hibaksha and uh, got married, that they actually had difficulty bearing children. I think that was, it, it could have been a rumor. I really don't know. One of the things that I think we have to realize too was at that time before the bomb even, there were a lot of illnesses and people had pretty short lives in Japan. The one thing that I realized when I talked to my mother about this time in her life is that before the bomb, there were a lot of illnesses in which people died. She was really actually a, a, a sickly child. She was 12 at the time of the bomb. And she was in and out of the hospital. And what I realized was that a lot of these people suffered from various different illnesses with various names, but they all really had to do with the lung, tuberculosis or pneumonia or whatever, some type of lung disease. So I haven't really figured out what it was, what that was, but I just wanted to point out that 
there was a lot going on at that time. People were not exactly in great health. Could have been the environment. It could have been the medication. I don't know. I, I really don't know. Well, at the time, toward the end of World War II, wasn't Japan suffering pretty bad anyway, just from the constant bombing that was going on? Yes. Yeah, the war was continuing. There was a lot of malnutrition. My mom was really wasn't, she was in a pretty favored position because my grandmother, she worked for Mitsubishi Shipping in Nagasaki. So, and that was connected to the military, the Navy. So they didn't suffer from malnutrition. And yet she did have lung issues, uh, which again, put her in the hospital. And um, she did say that she, early that year, 1945, in the spring, she was hospitalized and she was expected to pass. So again, this was before the, the bomb. She was in terrible health. She recovered in the summer and then the bomb occurred. And she really jokes about this. It's after the bomb, she actually regained her health and energy, which is contradictory, but she jokes around about it and it happens to be her truth. So I don't know. So do you feel like both your grandmother and your mother accepted outright that the United States dropped a nuclear bomb on the city they were in? Uh, yes, I think that they believed it. Um, what it was called at the time was a Shin Bakudan, which is like a new form or new shape bomb. Uh, this is what they heard was dropped in Hiroshima. You know, so my mom and my grandmother, because they my my grandmother worked at the Mitsubishi facility, they had a little bit of input from the people over there that. There was something that happened in Hiroshima, and the term apparently that was used at the time was Shin Bakudan. So they were told that this is what happened to them. So they believed it. But my grandmother, she didn't suffer any injuries or illness after that. So again, you know, we just attribute it to good luck, that it was a miracle and it, it was a blessing. So uh, this is how we view things up until I would say recently. So I should actually apologize to you because it sounds like you speak Japanese. Should I be calling it Habaksha or Habakusha? Do you know the correct pronunciation? Oh, yeah. It's um, Hibakusha. Hibakusha. Okay. Yeah. My, mm-hmm. my apologies. I should have realized. And before, before we go on, I'll just make the point because I looked up a few things. You know, the words always have meaning and it always struck me as interesting that so quickly we got a word for the people who experienced the bomb. And as I said, the original intent put to that word would literally translate in English affected bomb person. Apparently, they have swapped the word bomb out for exposition. Now, if you go look up the word exposition, here's where it gets interesting. Why would you do it? The word exposition means a setting forth of meaning or intent. And there are other meanings as well. But you mentioned that they were working for Mitsubishi. Jason, do you remember? I think when we first did that, uh, the military had claimed that there were military targets was part of the reason that they had targeted. They claimed they targeted those two cities, but part of it was they were manufacturing for the military, which I think was Mitsubishi. Do you remember that, Jason, that Mitsubishi, that was part of their reasoning? that Mitsubishi was creating things for the war effort. Yeah, it was supposed to be a military target. 
So May, I think one of the earliest things that got me going on it, well, there were a number of things, but as I began to apply logic, I realized all at once, well, part of it was from my time in the military because I had asked questions like, how can there be a day trip to Hiroshima? We were told the half-life of the radiation was however, it was like, if I remember when I was young, it was like thousands and thousands of years. And that seems to have changed, but it's hard to defend memory. That was one of the things that got me thinking about it. And the other thing was that no one seemed to have the most basic answers. But when I got to a point of applying logic, I realized that there's never been a time when there haven't been living men and women, living plants, living animals, and drinkable water in either Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And so as I say things, how do you digest that kind of logic? What do you think about that as I say it now? You know, it's funny because I I don't think my grandmother or my mom really thought of that aspect of it. You're told one thing by authorities and you just believe it, right? But the funny thing is that their lived reality is they were there for both my mom and my grandmother were there in Nagasaki about a week after the incident. And they left town and then they went back. Actually, my grandmother went back maybe a couple weeks later. And she stayed there because she had to work. She was a single mom. And there was no concern about the water, the concern about the food. Everything grew back. The flowers in the spring came back in bloom. And there was really none of that destruction they witnessed. So that's what I could say. Another part, when you mentioned the word hibaksha, and how they change the terminology because hibaksha is it really does incorporate the word bomb in there. But now, from what I understand, that term is used for people who were in Fukushima. So it's a little bit weird because you can see in the word that the word uh, hibaksha, that the word bomb is in there, but there was no bomb in Fukushima. And yet, it will still apply. So you can see how they make these changes for whatever reason. There's just a lot of changes to the story, including what you were saying about how it would take so many years for nature to recover from such damage. At one time, they scared us into thinking that it was devastating to this uh, a certain degree, and it turned out not to be so. So they had to kind of lower the the number of years and I don't even know what the story is now, honestly. I really don't. Hey, it still doesn't fit because I remember what I remember was many thousands of years. We were told when I was young, the half-life. And the problem is, is it starts becoming, well, is that an atom bomb or a hydrogen bomb? But the point was, is when I started to bring up these ideas, then the counter argument will be, well, was that an atom bomb or a hydrogen? You know, it, it becomes this scientific convoluting of what you're trying to get at. But to me, when you swap the word bomb, and I'm actually reading here that part of it was directly because of Fukushima. I mean, come on, the word exposition. I don't know if there's a difference in Japan. When you start to swap the word bomb, which means what it means, for the idea of setting forth a meaning or intent, and it also means a statement or rhetorical discourse intended to give information about or an explanation of difficult material, again, even that is becoming convoluted. But before we move forward, I'm just going to ask point blank. And I'll preface, based on what Jason and I did, I came to the conclusion that 
I'll probably never know the things I wish I could know, certainly. But what I suspect is true is that places were firebombed. What I know is true is that the press in some places had been completely eliminated, except for like one person who ended up being tied to the ABC places like the CIA. So I don't know what Jason thinks, but what do you accept probably happened in Nagasaki and Hiroshima? Do you have something that you think probably happened? You know, from the stories that I've heard directly from both my mom and my grandmother, there doesn't seem to be radiation. That's what I believe. At this point, that's what I believe. An event did happen. There was some kind of extreme explosion close to her area, and there were a lot of fires. So according to her account, there were a lot of people who, a lot of the injuries had to do with burns and glass from the explosion. The buildings, the windows exploded and um, hit people and Uh, certain buildings collapsing on people. So those types of injuries is what she can account for. But if you ask her whether or not she witnessed radiation, illness, or anything like that, then the answer is no. I should have asked this up front. Did your grandmother or does your mother have any recollection of the actual day that this was reported to have happened on the 9th of August? Yes. Yes. You mean what she experienced personally on that day? Does she remember? Yes. What does she remember of the actual day, August 9? Well, she was 12 years old at that time. And what she remembers is that early that morning, there was an air raid siren. So everybody went into the bomb shelter and they were told that everything was safe. So she came back to the facility. She was actually living in uh, the dormitory in Mitsubishi, in the Mitsubishi facility. And on that day, she was opening her bento box and about ready to have an early lunch. So she was sitting at a ping pong table in a recreation room. And her mother was there with another coworker, not too far from her. And the air raid siren came up again. When they heard the air raid siren, she shot up, ran to the corridor. And she just reached the part of the corridor when... She heard, she actually heard, she thinks she heard uh, something up in the air. And then she saw a flash, like a blinding flash. And then that's all she remembers. Apparently she was, she was knocked by like an extreme force. She traveled through the whole extent of the corridor and she crashed into the other side, knocked out a few front teeth. And she had a whole bunch of um, broken glass pieces stuck on her. So she, she was really knocked unconscious. And so let's see, she would have been, so she's 1932. At the time that this happened, she would have been how old? 12. 12. And so she sustained injuries that day. So it's one thing to wonder if someone's memory is good, but basically she lost teeth and she knows it happened on that day. What happened after? Does she remember what happened when she came to? Yeah, she found herself in like a medical facility. So Mitsubishi had their own medical staff. Uh, So someone apparently had found her at the end of the corridor, knocked unconscious, and had taken her to safety. And so they had bandaged her up and taken off a lot of the glass pieces. Not all, but there were plenty of glass pieces stuck on her body. And her mother was there. 
as well. But as I said, my grandmother, actually, I don't know if I mentioned this, but my grandmother was in the same room uh, with another uh, coworker and she didn't have any injuries at all. So apparently what happened was the coworker who was sitting next to her fell on top of her and protected her from whatever glass that might have been flying around the room. So wait a minute, your grandmother was, could she, was your grandmother in the same area as your mother? She was in the same room. She was in the same, it's like a recreation room that they were in. So the three people were in that room. My mom shot up from the chair when she heard the air raid siren and she was running toward the corridor. I don't know where my grandmother was. I think she was just right there by the chair that she was sitting at and her coworker fell on top of her. And so, so her coworker suffered some injuries like glass piercing her skin and stuff. But my grandmother, she really didn't have any injuries. She was completely healthy, no illness, no injuries. This is supposed to be the concussive blast from immediately post the explosion? Yes, it's supposed to be, yes. So again, what my mom remembers of the bomb is that there was a bright flash And what's interesting is you hear people recounting the story and they will say, they will call it picadon, picadon, which is, pica means like bright flash. It's like Pikachu and Pokemon. It's a bright flash. And then don is actually the sound, like a booming sound. So picadon. So there's a flash and then there's a sound. My mom doesn't remember the sound. So all she remembers is a pica. Um, which is a flash. It was so bright that she claims that for years afterwards, she had some sort of PTSD. When there was lightning, she just um, was really frightening because of that bright flash. So that's really what she remembers. Is that part of what your grandmother remembers, that your mother lost her teeth because of the concussive blast on that day? Yes. You know, again, my grandmother didn't really talk too much about the incident or anything really. (laughs) She just wasn't very like a conversationalist. So this is a story that my mom used to tell us. Uh, My grandmother was there at the time when she would tell us the story and that's what she, she didn't deny or anything. So we believe that to be true, that that is exactly the account of what happened on that day for those two. Do you know how far the Mitsubishi complex was from the claimed ground zero? Do you have any idea? Well, it's within that vicinity of what you would call exposed people. So I think when you say exposition, you know that term of hibakusha, and they use the word exposition. I wonder if they're referring to exposure to radiation. It could mean something different in Japanese. To be fair, I'm doing an English lookup on an English word. So we both know, you know, things get lost in translation. So that's a good point. Okay. So, yeah, I think that would explain why they want to, they made that change recently after Fukushima. They want to emphasize the fact that it is radiation, the radiation aspect of these events. I think that might explain why they made that change to that term. But anyhow, that was her personal account of that day of what happened. Again, she didn't mention anything about radiation illness. Neither one of them suffered from that, and they didn't witness that at the facility. Again, the Mitsubishi facility is in Nagasaki, so it's within a two-kilometer 
uh, vicinity of what people call the hypocenter. You know, it's like zero. And that's an interesting thing, too, because the hypocenter, the place where it fell, was in an area of Nagasaki called Urakami, which has an interesting history. Strangely enough, that was the area in which, before the bomb, during the war, there was what was called, it's a mandatory evacuation. So the government told the people who were living in the town of Nagasaki to move away from the city and to move into a safer area and to go to some someplace rural. And they were told specifically, some of the Mitsubishi employees were told to specifically move their families to Urakami. And that's actually where most of the devastation happened, supposedly. And another interesting aspect of Urakami, which I, I didn't realize until I was looking into it, is that it's, it has a historical significance because it was where a lot of the Christians within Japan congregated. And when I say Christians, I mean they're Catholics and Catholics predominantly of the Jesuit order. And that was kind of interesting to me because Japan really isn't known to have a huge Christian community. But the one very interesting aspect of Nagasaki is it's a port city. And for a country that's been historically isolationist, Nagasaki was one of the main areas in which it was like the front door to trade and commerce, where they opened the doors to Chinese people, Korean people, and also plenty of Europeans, mainly um, the Portuguese and the Dutch. And they say that Nagasaki was, the port was developed by the Dutch and the Portuguese. And you can actually see that in the language that's being used in Nagasaki, or that was even used back then. You know, my mom would often say that when she lived in Nagasaki, people didn't use the word Osaru-san, which is monkey. They didn't use a Japanese word. They used the word monkey. And my grandmother would often refer to soap as, I think it was shabon, which is like sabon. It's a Portuguese word for soap. There is a Japanese term called sekken for soap. But in that area, they used a lot of foreign words. It was really incorporated into the language already. And so my mom didn't even know the word Osarusam, which is monkey. She didn't know the Japanese term until she was much older. Like she left the area and then she realized that there was another term for that. So where was the term monkey being applied to? Who is it being applied to? Oh, no, it's just um, monkey as in if you're referring to the animal. Okay. So your, your point. Okay. So I get it. So you're pointing out that the Western language had crept in. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was a really big part of the language. If, if you think about it, Japan too, you know, it's, it's part of the language and Portuguese, I think is one of the heaviest influencers, Portugal, because if you look at it, not only in the language, but in the, the food, like tempura is, you know, everyone knows tempura. They think it's Japanese, but the word is really not Japanese. It's temporas. It's a Portuguese word. It might have a little bit of a Catholic connotation to it, the word. I'm not too sure about that, but there are a lot of words like ombu, which means piggyback. It comes from the Portuguese word for shoulders, I guess, ombros. So these are words that I heard my mom 
and my grandma use, and I just thought they were Japanese, but they really don't have a root in Japanese. They come from mainly, I think, Portuguese. And this would be due to the uh, the Catholics coming in, whatever the Shogun era is. What, what is that, Carl, like the 1500s? Well, I was about to get there because the book Shogun uh, by James Clavell actually covers what we're referring to. And by the way, it's probably rightly called the Jesuits. But what the point I was about to make is, and this has always baffled me, Japan is a special place on the world stage, and it always has been. As May pointed out, they closed their gates to the rest of the world. And even when that had happened, there were some people that were allowed in. Now, apparently the Dutch basically just wanted to trade. So in some of the accounts that I've seen, the Dutch in some ways were given a free pass because they weren't pushing the religion. But for some reason, the Jesuits and others were early in. But the thing that's weird is Japan's not very big, right? Well, I guess it shouldn't surprise us. Britain's not very big. And look, look what's happened there. But they've always got a seat at the table. As a matter of fact, in my research over the years, because I love Japan and I love the culture, and as everybody knows, I spent time there in the Marine Corps, there are times when way back people left Japan to go to places like Israel and realized there was a commonality in the language. For whatever reason, Japan, from the point of view of the world stage, has always been a special place. But I mean, you start when we first talked about doing this episode, you had already realized that the Jesuits were early in. And I think you've already mentioned the cathedral, which I believe was originally Jesuit, wasn't it? That get destroyed supposedly by the Nagasaki bomb. Yeah, that's really when I started realizing that there was a heavy Jesuit influence in Japan. I really wasn't aware of it until I started looking into Nagasaki because again, Urakami, which is uh, the part of Nagasaki that was hit, that's the hypocenter, ground zero. That is known in historically as a place where a lot of so-called hidden Christians gathered because through history, there are a lot of uh, persecutions of Christians in Japan. Late 1700s, I think that would be just to put a time frame for folks. Yes. So what's interesting is, again, I wasn't really aware of this aspect of Japanese history. Again, there aren't that many Christians in Japan even today. I think it's growing, but there aren't that many. But I do have some Japanese Christian friends, and they did tell me about the persecutions in Japan and how horrible it was. Uh, what they would do is they would ask people, I, I guess the shogun or the people uh, who, the Japanese people who controlled that area, they, were, they became suspicious of the Christians. And they would ask these uh, Christians, these people, to step on an image of Jesus or Mary. And uh, if they refused to step on it, that was the way that they discovered that these were uh, Christians. So they had to be persecuted. Again, the interesting part about this is that Japanese people, they don't really make a distinction between different sects of Christianity. So when they say Christian, when you talk about Christianity, when Japanese people talk about them, Christians, they lump them all together. They don't make a distinction between Protestants and Catholics and Jesuits. So for a long time, I didn't really understand about this part of the history. But apparently there's like an alternate history about why there was this Christian persecution in Japan. Is it because the leaders in Japan at that time, 
they suspected that the people, the Catholics were coming in again, the people of the Jesuit order were coming into the country and using Christianity as a pretext and converting the people and then eventually gathering the people to conquer the land, essentially. So this is apparently what some of the leaders in Japan believed, and that is why they had these persecutions of Christians throughout uh, Japan's history. And uh, again, you know, people talk about the persecution of Christians, but I think it's important to make a distinction about who these Christians were and what the uh, suspicion, what what was the cause of them persecuting these people? What was the suspicion behind it? Again, I don't know what's true, but I just find it very interesting. Um, It's not something that a lot of Japanese people understand. I think I can actually address it. And by the way, there is one heck of an excerpt from the book by James Clavell called Shogun. And the reason I always harp on this is because in his fictional remake, very good remake of the time, I would add, he does an exchange, which underlines exactly what we're talking about. What I suspect is true, and I've done lots of research around this. I think that the people in charge in Japan had closed their borders because they knew there was a threat like the Jesuits out there. And I know that doesn't jive necessarily with the mainstream history we're handed. Eventually, they start coming in, but then there start being shoguns and others who realize the danger. And so they start saying, this religion's got to go. And what's weird is it seems like at times when they're told they were out, there were still ones there. And at other times, the Dutch were quietly there. But to refer back to what Clavel wrote, there was a pilot. And a pilot was a big deal, supposedly back in these days, because they had navigated and they had the maps. And what they knew were the highest secrets of the, sh- the time when ships were trying to figure out where you could go in the world. So this Portuguese pilot, well, this pilot who was not Catholic was speaking to the Shogun and he told him, why do you allow these Jesuits to be here? Don't you know the, what they're trying to do? And the Shogun wasn't hearing him. So he finally says, the head Jesuit is called the Pope. And there's a thing called the canonical bull. And he references, it. by the way, that bull is still in power to this day that is referenced in the book Shogun. And he tells the Shogun that the Pope owns you. And not only does he own you, he owns everything here. And he has also laid claim to all the things that have not yet been discovered. And I think that that small inclusion into the Shogun book really begins to shine the light on what we're talking about here. And for my money, it's at the root of the nuke ruse. Well, what I accept was a complete ruse Uh, with regard to Japan or the existence of nuclear weapons to this day. And so there's, there's a big mouthful trying to address this very strange interaction between the Catholic Church and early Japan. Well, what's interesting is that, again, I think a lot of Japanese people don't make a distinction between Christians and Protestants, Catholics and Jesuits. And what I realized that one of the major universities in Japan, private universities, which is Sophia University. I didn't know, but it is a Jesuit college. Again, I repeat this because I don't think a lot of Japanese people understand that there is a huge Jesuit influence within Japan. So when you think about 
there's Sophia University. There's also, I think, some kind of, I think it was the architect of the Hiroshima Dome. I don't know if he was a Jesuit, but he also constructed the Jesuit college at one time, you know, Sophia University. So I'm just seeing a lot of things that I didn't see before. I don't really know what to make of it, but Crow, what you said, I think that that is a possibility. It just makes complete sense to me. And um, having spoken to a friend of mine who's Japanese, whatever you said about uh, the suspicion that former leaders in Japan had about the Jesuit order, it is considered alternate history. There are people who believe that that is what happened. And actually, it makes sense to me. Well, what's interesting is you're pointing out that there was a Jesuit, you know, a historical Jesuit stronghold right where the bomb had happened. But anyhow, we're coming to the top of hour one. And I'll back up a little bit about what I said. Uh, it was in the mid 1500s, I believe, if I'm remembering, that the Jesuits made it into Japan. And I'm doing this from memory. By the time the late, I think it's the 1500s, the late 1500s, if I'm not mistaken, it would have been the Tokugawa shogunate says, we've had enough of you guys get out. And I think this is like 1600, 1620 by the time this happens. But the thing is, is they, as far as I can tell, they never totally got out. There was a period of time when apparently it was very dangerous, but they always maintained a foothold. But we're going to pick up and on much more when we come back. May, are you going to have people contact you at all? I'm guessing not because you used a pseudonym, because typically this would be the point where I offer up contact information. So maybe I'll just ask you this. Do you intend to be in comments when the show goes up, if people want to ask you things? Sure. I couldn't answer whatever questions people might have. I'll do my best. Okay. It's perfectly fine for you to be private, by the way, just to let you know. So when you're logged in and the show goes live, there's comments particular to that show. Jason, anything you want to add? For hour two, it looks like we have a good bit of history to still get into as far as things that changed after the bombings that got into the culture, right? Right. Well, what I noticed from our pre-discussions with May was she began to go, I won't say a cult, but more to the hidden side as she looked in the same way that she just, I, I think, accurately connected Jesuit influence to the very place that this was happening. But anyhow, let's uh, wrap up hour one and get ready to come back on hour two. We've got a lot to get through yet. And it's interesting. By the way, May, do you speak fluent Japanese? Um, I wouldn't call it fluent, but uh, enough to get by. Okay. All right. So let me wrap up and we're going to prep and come back and we're going to get further into this. And again, I think it's important. And these, these opportunities like this are diminishing. Pretty soon, there's not going to be anyone around who could claim to have been in Nagasaki or Hiroshima, nor are we going to have the opportunity for much longer to get the point of view from the families who were affected in a culture that actually invented a word to use for the people who were affected by this so-called historical event, which I've done my best to take apart, uh, which from my point of view is still being used as a weapon to this day to incite fear of the idea that a nuclear weapon could do damage beyond belief. But with that, we're going to wrap up hour one of episode 507. Hour one is free to everybody at crow777radio.com. 
That is CRROW777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full two-hour, two-hour-plus episode. Members also get free access to the movie Shoot the Moon with the majority of my telescope work that Jason put together has many awards at this point. With that, we're going to prep up for hour two, and I'd like to wish everybody a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. And I truly hope to see everyone logged in as members on the other side. There it is, man. Cheers. Is the enemy of knowing.